When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global discussion. As a columnist, most of my discussions are off the record and then used as background for my columns. But with this show, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. Today's edition comes from Singapore, the Southeast Asian city-state, which has become one of the great centres of the age of globalisation. One of my favourite views is to go to the top of a skyscraper in Singapore and to look down at the scores of container ships going through the Malacca Strait, the busiest shipping route in the world because it carries so much of the traffic between Asia and the West. Singapore's a unique place because it's the only country I know of that can justly claim to have a special relationship with both the United States and China. That's the legacy of the country's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew. But that ability to stay close to both Washington and Beijing means that the country's success is potentially threatened by the growing antagonism between China and America. While the Singaporean government is careful to try to maintain a balance between East and West, That's not true of one of the country's leading intellectuals, Kishore Mababani, who's emerged as a trenchant critic of the West and an admirer of China. You don't get the top 1% of brains in America working in the regular public services. In China, it's the exact opposite. (laughs) Kishore Mababani's a former head of the Singaporean Diplomatic Service, and he's also a prolific author. I visited him at his home in Singapore last week, and I started by asking him whether the growing tensions between America and China was making life increasingly difficult for Singapore. There are actually two countries that will have the greatest amount of difficulty uh, if relations between the United States and China get worse as they're likely to. The first country is Australia. (laughs) Its defence relationship is 100% with the United States and its economy is 60-70% with China. Singapore is not so bad. We have a very close relationship. Not, we're not an ally of the United States, but we have a very close relationship, defense relationship with the United States. And we also have very, very strong economic ties. Uh, actually, with both of them, but certainly we do more trade with China than the United States. And also Singapore, you know, I remember when I used to come here in the early 90s, it was one of the first countries to say the rise of China's happening and that we're going to help them. So you've always had a close relationship, actually, even with the Chinese Communist Party, helped to train some of their officials and so on. Yes, in fact, this is one of Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's great contributions. He sort of understood and anticipated that the rise of China was going to change everything. And he actually tried his best to, in some ways, prepare the United States for it. 
but sadly all his lessons, which actually Graham Allison and Bob Blackwell tried to capture in their book on Lee Kuan Yew, you know, the Americans didn't get the message. And now, of course, there is an incredible sense of surprise, shock, even outrage at how strong China has become. But you could have seen that coming way back in the 90s and early 2000s. So when you look at the current deterioration in the relationship between the US and China, do you put most of the blame on the Americans? Uh, I, I would say, it's, uh, I mean, that's what my next book is about. Uh, the Chinese have made some mistakes. I mean, one clear mistake the Chinese made was to alienate the American business community. And that was actually a major mistake because until now, there have been eruptions of anti-China feeling in America before, but each time it happened, the American business community would step on the brake and say, excuse me, we're making big profits in China. This time around, what's unusual is that the American business community just stepped aside and allowed this China bashing to continue. So that was a mistake that the Chinese had made. But overall, clearly, it is the United States that has failed to understand and adapt to the fact that China is no longer 10% the size of the U.S. economy as it was in 1980 in PPP terms. But in PPP terms, the Chinese economy today is bigger. And you've got to deal very differently with an animal that is one-tenth your size and an animal that is bigger than you. So psychologically, the Americans haven't adapted to this new reality uh, of a new China. And the crazy part is that the rest of the world is, is adapting to China. You know? Every country, including, frankly, I mentioned Australia, you mentioned uh, Japan, everybody's adjusting. It's a different China, and we have to manage it differently. And in your book, your master of the provocative book title, if I may say so, so your most recent published book was Has the West Lost It? Yeah. And A, what do you mean by losing it? And to the extent that the US has lost it, because I think that's a rhetorical question to which the answer is sort of yes, actually, mm. looking at the book. To what extent is that, do you think, driven by the rise of China and the inability to accept mm. it as mm. you see it? Well, the book Has the West Lost It is about more than just United States and China, because the West also includes Europe and Australia, Canada, New Zealand. And of course, it talks about the rest of the world and not just China. And the tragedy here is that the West always had a great project to improve the human condition. I mean, okay, yes, it colonized the world, you know, dominated the world, but despite all that, it's also sharing its wisdom with the rest of the world, sharing science and technology, sharing modern medicine. And the amazing thing is that the great Western project to improve humanity succeeded beyond all expectations. I mean, like global poverty went from 75% in 1950 to less than 10% today. Wars are, interstate wars are diminishing. The global middle classes are exploding. Infant mortality is going down. Everything, every by every dimension, as Steven Pinker documents, the human condition has never become better. So this is a moment when the West should be celebrating the fact that it has succeeded. But instead, what you have is an incredible amount of depression today in the West. So I try to understand in this book, has the West lost it? Why is the West so depressed? And I think basically the West has made a series of strategic mistakes in the precise period when the rest of the world was making up. 
And those mistakes are? There were the three mistakes I highlight. The first strategic mistake was clearly made at the end of the Cold War. And of course, when the West defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot, that was a great victory. But you know, all great victories lead to arrogance and hubris. Hubris that was best captured in Francis Fukuyama's famous essay, The End of History. And as I say, in a somewhat cruel fashion, uh, in the book, that essay did a lot of brain damage to the West because it put the West to sleep around 1990. And precisely the moment, and this is an amazing coincidence, okay, it's an amazing coincidence, that essay put the West to sleep at precisely the moment when China and India decided to wake up. And the waking up of China and India is very significant because in the year one to the year 1820, for 1800 after the last 2000 years, the two largest economies were always those of China and India. So the past 200 years of Western domination have been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. It's perfectly natural to see the return of China and India. But at precisely the moment when China and India decide it's time to wake up, the West chooses to go to sleep. And this again is something that future historians will marvel at this incredible coincidence because the West could have done the opposite. It could have been very alert, vigilant and say, hey, let's get ready. A different world is coming. But instead, it chose to go to sleep. And the second strategic mistake was made after 9-11. And 9-11, of course, I was there in Manhattan when 9-11 happened. Because you were ambassador to the UN. I was yeah. ambassador to the UN then. So I could really experience the total shock and astonishment in America. But again, instead of reacting intelligently and thoughtfully to what does this mean? Why have we been attacked? The reaction was completely wild and irrational. I mean, the invasion of Afghanistan could be justified and also was justified under international law because Afghanistan was hosting Osama bin Laden that attacked America. Fair enough. But my God, why are we going to invade Iraq? And the invasion of Iraq was America's biggest geopolitical gift to China because in the precise decade, and it's interesting that it happened the same year, 9-11 happened in 2001, but something more significant happened in 2001, China joined the WTO. And when China joined the WTO, it injected 800 million new workers into the global capitalist system. There was a lot of creative destruction so instead of dealing with the impact of China's creative destruction and its impact on, say, the American economy, America went ahead and fought an unnecessary war in Iraq. And it gave China a free run for 10 years. And if you look at China's economic growth, the 10 best years of economic growth were the 10 years after it joined WTO. And that was a time when America just took its eye off the ball and fought an absolutely stupid and unnecessary war in Iraq. So that was the second strategic mistake. And the third strategic mistake is not so clear. It's when in 2014, when China's GNP, which used to be 10% of America's in 1980, when it became bigger than America in 2014, nobody paid attention. What does this mean? When suddenly an economy one-tenth of your size becomes bigger than you, clearly it has long-term strategic implications. But the paradox is that America, which has the largest strategic thinking industry in the world, as the worst strategic thinking in the world. But there is now an American reaction, uh, yes. you know, with, with Trump initiating yes. this trade war and mm. so on. Presumably, I'm guessing you think it's the wrong reaction, however. Well, I think clearly 
It is a fact that America has suddenly woken up to realize that there's a new challenge from China. But here too, instead of reacting calmly, rationally, thoughtfully... What would that be, then, being calm, rational, and thoughtful? Well, I think it would be various things. Look at the trade war, for example, right? Now, Trump believes that America's trade deficits are the result of China's unfair trading practices. But, you know, an economics 101 course on international trade tells you that America's trade deficits are a result of its imbalance between savings and spending. So even if China reduces its trade surplus with America to zero, America's overall macro trade deficits will continue, right? So it's a stupid thing to do, right? So instead, what they should do is address areas where some of China's economic practices have been unfair, like the stealing of intellectual property, its insistence that American companies share its technology and things like that, right? But these are the issues that can and should be addressed. And that way you can actually work with China instead of trying to beat up China by raising tariffs, raising tariffs, raising tariffs. It's not going to work. And the Chinese are not going to capitulate. The one big difference between the Chinese society and American societies that the Chinese society can accept pain. They've been through a lot of pain over the last 200 years. And if the Chinese leaders say, we have to tighten our belts, they will tighten their belts if they have to. So far, they haven't had to. Whereas an American president going for elections in 2020, like Donald Trump, cannot tell the people, hey, tighten your belts now. He's going to suffer. So how do you see this playing out? Well, I mean, that's what my next book, Has China Won? Sorry, did you say the title? The title is Has China Won? Question mark. And it is a long-term geopolitical contest. It's a multi-dimensional geopolitical contest. It's not just in the economic and trade sphere, which everyone is paying attention to. It's also in the political sphere in the military sphere, in the cultural sphere, and what I call the primacy sphere. And each of these dimensions are interrelated. And you know, when I was in preparation for this book, I had a one-on-one lunch with Henry Kissinger. And the message I got from Henry Kissinger, which he's allowed me to put in the book, is that the difference between China and America is that China has thought about what its long-term strategy should be in terms of managing America, America has no comprehensive long-term strategy towards China. But equally, I think, you know, some Americans would respond, look, the problems in American society are on the surface. It's an open society, they're debated, they're argued about. China also has its problems, but because it's an authoritarian one-party state, they're not discussed. But behind the scenes, or even on the surface now, is everything going that well in China? And I know you also travel to China a lot. You've just mm. been back from Beijing. In fact, I think you met the Chinese president just recently. You know, as somebody who also watches China, it seems to me that you could make a quite a strong case that things are not going in the right direction there either, particularly with the return to kind of a cult of personality around Xi Jinping, the incorporation of his thought into the constitution, abolition of term limits, problems on their borders with Hong Kong. So... You asked, has the West lost it? But you could equally say, well, is China losing it? Yes. Well, let me answer with a paradoxical comment. 
uh, which I actually put in the book. The difference between China and America is that America is an open society with a closed mind, and China is a closed society with an open mind. So yes, on the surface, there's a lot more discussion in America, and on the surface, there's a lot less discussion in China. That's on the surface. Now let's go one level below. Let's say, for example, sit down with some of America's top policymakers, and let's sit down with some of the top Chinese policymakers, and I can assure you that the quality of mind and the quality of understanding of this real world that we live in is much higher in China than it is in the United States of America. And in the United States of America, especially in government circles, the deterioration of the quality of mind is quite shocking. You don't get the top one percent of brains in America working in the regular public services. In China, is the exact opposite. <laughs> you get the top one percent of brains in China working in the public service. Let's take, for example, the issue, let's say, climate change. Okay. And if you really want to sort of uh, understand what the issues are and what the challenges are and all that, sit down and talk to a Chinese policymaker. They've been thinking very hard about it, studying it and figuring out how to deal with it over the long term. Which is why, you know, surprisingly, when the United States walked away from its commitments to the Paris Accords, Chinese could have used that as an excuse to walk away too. They decided against it. They have a long-term view. This is a real problem. We have to deal with it. It's going to damage China too. Regardless of what America does, we're not going to give up our commitment. So that's an example of thinking hard and long term instead of thinking short term on big issues. So, just to round off where we started with the position of Singapore, if we assume that China becomes more ascendant in the world and more ascendant in this region, mm. is that necessarily going to be comfortable for Singapore? Because you know, Singapore's also been an incredible success story over 30, yeah. 40 years. Yeah. That has happened against the background of American hegemony. Is that success story going to be as possible in a China-dominated region? Well, I actually believe that Singapore is going to have the greatest opportunity ever in its history in the next 30 to 50 years, and for a very simple reason. The 19th century was the European century, and the capital of the European century essentially was London. The 20th century was the American century, and the capital of the American century essentially was New York. The 21st century will be the Asian century without a shadow of doubt, okay? Without a shadow of doubt. So the question is, where is the capital you naturally go to to understand the Asian century? It cannot be Beijing. Because China, at the end of the day, is still relatively only for one third of Asia, right, or forty percent or whatever it is, and it cannot be India. It has to be some other city that understands all the major civilizational streams of Asia, and the only modern developed city in Asia where the four major civilizational streams live together on a daily basis. And the four major civilization streams are the Chinese civilizational stream. 75% of Singapore's population is Chinese. The Indian civilizational stream, we have a very strong Indian population. 
the Islamic civilizational stream, then we have 15% of our population is Muslim, and the Western civilizational stream. So the, if you want to really understand the new Asia, the dynamism of the new Asia, and how the different civilizational streams are going to interact, the best, in a sense, living laboratory of what modern Asia will look like is found in Singapore. Okay, well, it's a great note to end. Thanks very much, Kishore. That's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash rachmanreview. Until next week, goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.